CD6 I think, said Canina, that we'd better land. They glided down towards a crescent of beach where the desert reached the sea. In normal light it would have been blinding white with a sand made up of billions of tiny shell fragments. But at this time of day it was blood red and primordial. Ranks of driftwood carved by the waves and bleached by the sun were piled up on the tide line like the bones of ancient fish or the biggest floral art accessory counter in the universe. Nothing stirred apart from the waves. There were a few rocks around, but they were fire-brick hot and home to no mollusk or seaweed. Even the sea looked arid. If any proto-amphibian emerged onto a beach like this, it would have given up there and then, gone back into the water and told all its relatives to forget the legs it wasn't worth it. The air felt as though it had been cooked in a sock. Even so, Nigel insisted that they light a fire. It's more friendly, he said. Besides, there could be monsters. Canina looked at the oily wavelets rolling up the beach in what appeared to be a half-hearted attempt to get out of the sea. In that, she said, you never can tell. Rincewind mooched along the waterline, distractedly picking up stones and throwing them in the sea. One or two were thrown back. After a while, Canina got a fire going, and the bone-dry, salt-saturated wood sent blue and green flames roaring up under a fountain of sparks. The wizard went and sat in the dancing shadows, his back against a pile of whitened wood, wrapped in a cloud of such impenetrable gloom that even Creosote stopped complaining of thirst and shut up. Canina woke up after midnight. There was a crescent moon on the horizon, and a thin, chilly mist covered the sand. Creosote was snoring on his back, Nigel, who was theoretically on guard, was sound asleep. Canina lay perfectly still, every sense seeking out the thing that had woken her. Finally, she heard it again. It was a tiny, diffident clinking noise, barely audible above the muted slurp of the sea. She got up, or rather she slid into the vertical as bonelessly as a jellyfish, and flicked Nigel's sword out of his unresisting hand. Then she sidled through the mist without causing so much as an extra swirl. The fire sank down further into its bed of ash. After a while, Canina came back and shook the other two awake. Where is it? I think you ought to see this, she hissed. I think it could be important. I just shut my eyes for a second, Nigel protested. Never mind about that. Come on. Creosote squinted around the impromptu campsite. Where's the wizard fellow? You'll see, and don't make a noise. It could be dangerous. They stumbled after her, knee-deep in vapour, towards the sea. Eventually, Nigel said, Why dangerous? Shh! Did you hear it? Nigel listened. Like a sort of ringing noise? Watch. Rincewind walked jerkily up the beach, carrying a large round rock in both hands. He walked past them without a word, his eyes staring straight ahead. They followed him along the cold beach until he reached a bare area between the dunes, where he stopped and, still moving with all the grace of a clothes horse, dropped the rock. It made a clinking noise. There was a wide circle of other stones. Very few of them had actually stayed on top of another one. The three of them crouched down and watched him. Is he asleep? said Creosote. Canina nodded. What's he trying to do? I think he's trying to build a tower. Rincewind lurched back into the ring of stones and with great care placed another rock on empty air. It fell down. He's not very good at it, is he? said Nigel. It is very sad, said Creosote. 
Maybe we ought to wake him up, said Canina. Only I heard that if you wake up a sleepwalker, their legs fall off or something. What do you think? Could be risky with wizards, said Nigel. They tried to make themselves comfortable on the chilly sand. It's rather pathetic, isn't it, said Creosote. It's not as if he's really a proper wizard. Canina and Nigel tried to avoid one another's gaze. Finally, the boy coughed and said, I'm <clears throat> not exactly a barbarian hero, you know. You may have noticed. They watched the toiling figure of Rincewind for a while, and then Canina said, If it comes to that, I think I lack a certain something when it comes to hairdressing. They both stared fixedly at the sleepwalker, busy with their own thoughts and red with mutual embarrassment. Creosote cleared his throat. If it makes anyone feel any better, he said, I sometimes perceive that my poetry leaves a lot to be desired. Rincewind carefully tried to balance a large rock on a small pebble. It fell off, but he appeared to be happy with the result. Speaking as a poet, said Canina carefully, uh, what would you say about this situation? Creosote shifted uneasily. Mm. Funny old thing, life, he said. Pretty apt. Nigel lay back and looked up at the hazy stars. And he sat bolt upright. Did you see that? he demanded. What? It was a sort of flash, a kind of... The hubwood horizon exploded into a silent flower of colour, which expanded rapidly through all the hues of the conventional spectrum before flashing into brilliant octarine. It etched itself on their eyeballs before fading away. After a while, there was a distant rumble. Some sort of magical weapon, said Canina, blinking. A gust of warm wind picked up the mist and streamed it past them. Below this, said Nigel, getting to his feet, I'm going to wake him up, even if it means we end up carrying him. He reached out for Rincewind's shoulder just as something went past very high overhead, making a noise like a flock of geese on nitrous oxide. It disappeared into the desert behind them. Then there was a sound that would have set false teeth on edge, a flash of green light and a thump. I'll wake him up, said Canina. You get the carpet. She clambered over the ring of rocks and took the sleeping wizard gently by the arm, and this would have been a textbook way of waking a somnambulist if Rincewind hadn't dropped the rock he was carrying on his foot. He opened his eyes. Where am I? he said. On the beach. You've been, um, dreaming. Rincewind blinked at the mist, the sky, the circle of stones, Canina, the circle of stones again, and finally back at the sky. What's been happening? he said. Some sort of magical fireworks. Oh, it's started then. He lurched unsteadily out of the circle in a way that suggested to Canina that perhaps he wasn't quite awake yet, and staggered back towards the remains of the fire. He walked a few steps and then appeared to remember something. He looked down at his foot and said, Ow. He'd almost reached the fire when the blast from the last spell reached them. It had been aimed at the tower in Al-Khali, which was twenty miles away, and by now the wave front was extremely diffuse. It was hardly affecting the nature of things as it surged over the dunes with a faint sucking noise. The fire burned red and green for a second, one of Nigel's sandals turned into a small and irritated badger, and a pigeon flew out of the seraph's turban. Then it was past and boiling out over the sea. What was that? said Nigel. He kicked the badger, who was sniffing at his foot. Hmm? said Rincewind. That! Oh, that! said Rincewind. Just the backwash of a spell. 
They probably hit the tower in Al-Khali. Must have been pretty big to affect us here. It probably was. Hey, that was my palace, said Creosote weakly. I mean, I know it was a lot, but it was all I had. Sorry. But there were people in the city. They're probably all right, said Rincewind. Good. Whatever they are. What? Kanina grabbed his arm. Don't shout at him, she said. He's not himself. Ah, said Creosote dourly. An improvement. I say, that's a bit unfair, Nigel protested. I mean, he got me out of the snake pit and, well, he knows a lot. Yes, wizards are good at getting you out of the sort of trouble that only wizards can get you into, said Creosote. Then they expect you to thank them. Oh, I think it's got to be said, said Creosote, waving his hands irritably. He was briefly illuminated by the passage of another spell across the tormented sky. Look at that, he snapped. Oh, he means well. They all mean well. They probably all think the disc would be a better place if they were in charge. Take it from me. There's nothing more terrible than someone out to do the world a favour. Wizards. When all said and done, what good are they? I mean, can you name me something worthwhile any wizard's done? I think that's a bit cruel, said Canina, but with an edge in her voice that suggested she could be open to persuasion on the subject. Well, they make me sick muttered Creosote, who was feeling acutely sober and didn't like it much. I think we'll all feel better if we try to get a bit more sleep, said Nigel diplomatically. Things always look better by daylight. Well, nearly always, anyway. My mouth feels all horrible, too, muttered Creosote, determined to cling on to the remnant of his anger. Canina turned back to the fire and became aware of a gap in the scenery. It was rinsewind-shaped. He's gone. In fact, Rincewind was already half a mile over the dark sea, squatting on the carpet like an angry Buddha, his mind a soup of rage, humiliation and fury, with a side order of outrage. He hadn't wanted much, ever. He'd stuck with wizardry even though he wasn't any good at it. He'd always done his best, and now the whole world was conspiring against him. Well, he'd show them. Precisely who they were, and what they were going to be shown, was merely a matter of detail. He reached up and touched his hat for reassurance, even as it lost its last few sequins in the slipstream. The luggage was having problems of its own. The area around the Tower of Al-Khali, under the rentless magical bombardment, was already drifting beyond that reality horizon where time, space and matter lose their separate identities and start wearing one another's clothes. It was quite impossible to describe. Here is what it looked like. It looked like a piano sounds shortly after being dropped down a well. It tasted yellow and felt paisley. It smelt like a total eclipse of the moon. Of course, nearer to the tower it got really weird. Expecting anything unprotected to survive in that would be like expecting snow on a supernova. Fortunately, the luggage didn't know this and slid through the maelstrom with raw magic crystallising on its lid and hinges. It was in a foul mood. But again, there was nothing very unusual about this, except that the crackling fury earthing itself spectacularly all over the luggage in a multicoloured corona gave it the appearance of an early and very angry amphibian crawling out of a burning swamp. It was hot and stuffy inside the tower. There were no internal floors, just a series of walkways around the walls. They were lined with wizards, and the central space was a column of octarine light that creaked loudly as they poured their power into it. At its base stood Abrim, 
the octarine gems on the hat blazing so brightly that they looked more like holes cut through into a different universe, where, in defiance of probability, they had come out inside a sun. The vizier stood with his hands out, fingers splayed, eyes shut, mouth a thin line of concentration, balancing the forces. Usually a wizard could control power only to the extent of his own physical capability, but Abrim was learning fast. You made yourself the pinch in the hourglass, the fulcrum on the balance, the roll around the sausage. Do it right and you were the power. It was part of you and you were capable of... Has it been pointed out that his feet were several inches off the ground? His feet were several inches off the ground. Abrim was pulling together the potency for a spell that would soar away into the sky and beset the Ankh Tower with a thousand screaming demons when there came a thunderous knock at the door. There is a mantra to be said on these occasions. It doesn't matter if the door is a tent flap, a scrap of hide on a wind-blown yurt, three inches of solid oak with great iron nails in, or a rectangle of chipboard with mahogany veneer, a small light over it made of horrible bits of coloured glass and a bell push that plays a choice of twenty popular melodies that no music lover would want to listen to even after five years' sensory deprivation. One wizard turned to another and duly said, I wonder who that can be at this time of night. There was another series of thumps on the woodwork. There can't be anyone alive out there, said the other wizard, and he said it nervously, because if you ruled out the possibility of it being anyone alive, that always left the suspicion that perhaps it was someone dead. This time the banging rattled the hinges. One of us had better go out, said the first wizard. Good man. Ah, oh, right. He set off slowly down the short arched passage. I'll just go and see who it is then, he said. First class. It was a strange figure that made its hesitant way to the door. Ordinary robes weren't sufficient protection in the high-energy field inside the tower, and over his brocade and velvet the wizard wore a thick padded overall stuffed with rowan shavings and embroidered with industrial-grade sigils. He'd affixed a smoked glass visor to his pointy hat, and his gauntlets, which were extremely big, suggested that he was a wicket-keeper in a game of cricket played at supersonic speeds. The actinic flashes and pulsations from the great work in the main hall cast harsh shadows around him as he fumbled for the bolts. He pulled down the visor and opened the door a fraction. We don't want any, he began, and ought to have chosen his words better, because they were his epitaph. It was some time before his colleague noticed his continued absence and wandered down the passage to find him. The door had been thrown wide open, the thaumatic inferno outside roaring against the web of spells that held it in check. In fact, the door hadn't been pushed completely back. He pulled it aside to see why, and gave a little whimper. There was a noise behind him. He turned around. What? he began, which is a pretty poor syllable on which to end a life. High over the circle sea, Rincewind was feeling a bit of an idiot. This happens to everyone sooner or later. For example, in a tavern, someone jogs your elbow and you turn around quickly and give a mouthful of abuse to, you become slowly aware, the belt buckle of a man who, it turns out, was probably hewn rather than born. Or a little car runs into the back of yours and you rush out to show a bunch of fives to the driver who, it becomes apparent as he goes on unfolding more body like some horrible conjuring trick, must have been sitting on the back seat. Or you might be leading your mutinous colleagues to the captain's cabin and you hammer on the door and he sticks his great head out with a cutlass in either hand and you say, We're taking over the ship, you scum, and the lads are right with me. And he says, What lads? And you suddenly feel a great emptiness behind you and you say, Um. 
In other words, it's the familiar hot sinking feeling experienced by everyone who has let the waves of their own anger throw them far up on the beach of retribution, leaving them, in the poetic language of the everyday, up shit creek. Rincewind was still angry and humiliated and so forth, but these emotions had died down a bit and something of his normal character had reasserted itself. It was not very pleased to find itself on a few threads of blue and gold wool high above the phosphorescent waves. He'd been heading for Ankh Morpork. He tried to remember why. Of course, it was where it had all started. Perhaps it was the presence of the university, which was so heavy with magic it lay like a cannonball on the incontinence blanket of the universe, stretching reality very thin. Ankh was where things started and finished. It was also his home, such as it was, and it called to him. It has already been indicated that Rincewind appeared to have a certain amount of rodent in his ancestry, and in times of stress he felt an overpowering urge to make a run for his burrow. He let the carpet drift for a while on the air currents, while Dawn, which Creosote would probably have referred to as pink-fingered, made a ring of fire around the edge of the disc. It spread its lazy light over a world that was subtly different. Rincewind blinked. There was a weird light, no, now he came to think about it, not weird, but weird, which was much weirder. It was like looking at the world through a heat haze, but a haze that had a sort of life of its own. It danced and stretched and gave more than a hint that it wasn't just an optical illusion, but that it was reality itself that was being tensed and distended, like a rubber balloon trying to contain too much gas. The wavering was greatest in the direction of Ankh Morpork, where flashes and fountains of tortured air indicated that the struggle hadn't abated. A similar column hung over Al-Khali, and then Rincewind realised that it wasn't the only one. Wasn't that a tower over in Quirm, where the Circle Sea opened onto the Great Rim Ocean? And there were others. It had all gone critical. Wizardry was breaking up. Goodbye to the university, the levels, the orders. Deep in his heart, every wizard knew that the natural unit of wizardry was one wizard. The towers would multiply and fight until there was one tower left, and then the wizards would fight until there was one wizard. By then he'd probably fight himself. The whole edifice that operated as the balance wheel of magic was falling to bits. Rincewind resented that, deeply. He'd never been any good at magic, but that wasn't the point. He knew where he fitted. It was right at the bottom, but at least he fitted. He could look up and see the whole delicate machine ticking away, gently browsing off the natural magic generated by the turning of the disc. All he had was nothing. But that was something, and now it had been taken away. Rincewind turned the carpet until it was facing the distant gleam that was Ankh Morpork, which was a brilliant speck in the early morning light, and a part of his mind that wasn't doing anything else wondered why it was so bright. There also seemed to be a full moon, and even Rincewind, whose grasp of natural philosophy was pretty vague, was sure there had been one of those only the other day. Well, it didn't matter. He'd had enough. He wasn't going to try and understand anything any more. He was going home. Except that wizards can never go home. This is one of the ancient and deeply meaningful sayings about wizards, and it says something about most of them that they have never been able to work out what it means. Wizards aren't allowed to have wives, but they are allowed to have parents, and many of them go back to the old hometown for Hogswatch Night or Soul Cake Thursday for a bit of a sing-song and the heartwarming sight of all their boyhood bullies hurriedly avoiding them in the street. It's rather like the other saying they've never been able to understand, which is that you can't cross the same river twice. Experiments with a long-legged wizard and a small river say you can cross the same river 
30, 35 times a minute. Wizards don't like philosophy very much. As far as they're concerned, one hand clapping makes a noise like cluh. In this particular case, though, Rincewind couldn't go home because it actually wasn't there anymore. There was a city straddling the River Ark, but it wasn't one he'd ever seen before. It was white and clean, and didn't smell like a privy full of dead herrings. He landed in what had once been the Plaza of Broken Moons, and also in a state of some shock. There were fountains. There had been fountains before, of course, but they had oozed rather than played, and they'd look like thin soup. There were milky flagstones underfoot with little glittery bits in, and although the sun was sitting on the horizon like half a breakfast grapefruit, there was hardly anyone around. Normally, Ark was permanently crowded, the actual shade of the sky being a mere background detail. Smoke drifted over the city in long, greasy coils from the crown of boiling air above the university. It was the only movement apart from the fountains. Rincewind had always been rather proud of the fact that he always felt alone, even in the teeming city, but it was even worse being alone when he was all by himself. He rolled up the carpet and slung it over one shoulder and padded through the haunted streets towards the university. The gates hung open to the wind. Most of the buildings looked half-ruined by misses and ricochets. The Tower of Sorcery, far too high to be real, seemed to be unscathed. Not so the old Tower of Art. Half the magic aimed at the tower next door seemed to have rebounded on it. Parts of it had melted and started to run, some parts glowed, some parts had crystallised, a few parts seemed to have twisted partly out of their normal three dimensions. It made you feel sorry even for stone that it should have to undergo such treatment. In fact, nearly everything had happened to the tower except actual collapse. It looked so beaten that possibly even gravity had given up on it. Rincewind sighed and padded round the base of the tower towards the library, towards where the library had been. There was the arch of the doorway, and most of the walls were still standing, but a lot of the roof had fallen in, and everything was blackened by soot. Rincewind stood and stared for a long time. Then he dropped the carpet and ran, stumbling and sliding through the rubble that half-blocked the doorway. The stones were still warm underfoot. Here and there the wreckage of a bookcase still smouldered. Anyone watching would have seen Rincewind dart backwards and forwards across the simmering heaps, scrabbling desperately among them, throwing aside charred furniture, pulling aside lumps of fallen roof with less than superhuman strength. They would have seen him pause once or twice to get his breath back, then dive in again, cutting his hands on shards of half-molten glass from the dome of the roof. They would have noticed that he seemed to be sobbing. Eventually his questing fingers touched something warm and soft. The frantic wizard heaved a charred roof beam aside, scrabbled through a drift of fallen tiles and peered down. There, half squashed by the beam and baked brown by the fire, was a large bunch of overripe, squashy bananas. He picked one up very carefully and sat and watched it for some time until the end fell off. Then he ate it. We shouldn't have let him go like that, said Canina. How could we have stopped him, O oh, beauteous doe-eyed eagle? But he might do something stupid. I should think that is very likely, said Creosote primly. While we do something clever and sit on a baking beach with nothing to eat or drink, is that it? You could tell me a story, said Creosote, trembling slightly. Shut up. The seraph ran his tongue over his lips. I suppose a quick anecdote is out of the question, he croaked. Conina sighed. There's more to life than narrative, you know. Sorry, 
I lost control a little there. Now that the sun was well up, the crushed shell beach glowed like a salt flat. The sea didn't look any better by daylight. It moved like thin oil. Away on either side, the beach stretched in long, excruciatingly flat curves, supporting nothing but a few clumps of withered dune grass which lived off the moisture in the spray. There was no sign of any shade. The way I see it, said Canina, this is a beach, and that means sooner or later we'll come to a river, so all we have to do is keep walking in one direction. And yet, delightful snow on the slopes of Mount Eritor, we do not know which one. Nigel sighed and reached into his bag. Erm, um, he said, excuse me, would this be any good? I stole it, sorry. He held out the lamp that had been in the treasury. It's magic, isn't it? he said hopefully. I've heard about them. It's worth a try, isn't it? Creosote shook his head. But you said your grandfather used it to make his fortune, said Canina. A lamp, said the seraph. He used a lamp, not this lamp. No, the real lamp was a battered old thing, and one day this wicked peddler came round, offering new lamps for old, and my great-grandmother gave it to him for this one. The family kept it in the vault as a sort of memorial to her. A truly stupid woman. It doesn't work, of course. You tried it? No, but he wouldn't have given it away if it was any good, would he? Give it a rub, said Canina. It can't do any harm. I wouldn't, warned Creosote. Nigel held the lamp gingerly. It had a strangely sleek look, as if someone had set out to make a lamp that could go fast. He rubbed it. The effects were curiously unimpressive. There was a half-hearted pop and a puff of wispy smoke near Nigel's feet. A line appeared on the beach several feet away from the smoke. It spread quickly to outline a square of sand which vanished. A figure barreled out of the beach, jerked to a stop and groaned. It was wearing a turban, an expensive tan, a small gold medallion, shiny shorts and advanced running shoes with curly toes. It said... Now, I want to get this absolutely straight. Where am I? Canina recovered first. It's a beach, she said. Yeah, said the genie. But what I mean is, which lamp, what world? Don't you know? The creature took the lamp out of Nigel's unresisting grasp. Oh, this old thing, he said. I'm on timeshare, two weeks every August. But of course, usually one can never get away. Got a lot of lamps, have you? said Nigel. I am somewhat overcommitted on lamps, the genie agreed. In fact, I'm thinking of diversifying into rings. Rings are looking big at the moment. There's a lot of movement in rings. Sorry, people. Uh, what can I do you for? The last phrase was turned into that special voice which people use for humorous self-parody in the mistaken hope that it will make them sound like less of a prat. We, Canina began... I want a drink, snapped Creosote, and you are supposed to say that my wish is your command. Oh, absolutely no one says that sort of thing anymore, said the genie, and produced a glass out of nowhere. He treated Creosote to a brilliant smile, lasting a small percentage of one second. We want you to take us across the sea to Ark Moorpork, said Canina firmly. The genie looked blank. Then he pulled a very thick book from the empty air and consulted it. It was a fuller myth an invaluable aid for all whose business is with the arcane and hermetic. It contained lists of things that didn't exist, and in a very significant way, weren't important. 
Some of its pages could only be read after midnight or by strange and improbable illuminations. There were descriptions of underground constellations and wines as yet unfermented. For the really up-to-the-epoch occultist, who could afford the version bound in spider skin, there was even an insert showing the London Underground with the three stations they never dare show on the public maps. It sounds a really neat concept, he said eventually. Let's do lunch next Tuesday. OK. Do what? I'm a little energetic right now. You're a little... Canina began. Great, said the genie, sincerely, and glanced at his wrist. Hey, is that the time? He vanished. The three of them looked at the lamp in thoughtful silence, and then Nigel said, Whatever happened to, you know, the fat guys with the baggy trousers and the eye here and obey, old master? Creosote snarled. He'd just drunk his drink. It had turned out to be water with bubbles in it and a taste like warm flatirons. I'm bloody well not standing for it, snarled Canina. She snatched the lamp from his hand and rubbed it as if she was sorry she wasn't holding a handful of emery cloth. The genie reappeared at a different spot, which still managed to be several feet away from the weak explosion and obligatory cloud of smoke. He was now holding something curved and shiny to his ear and listening intently. He looked hurriedly at Canina's angry face and contrived to suggest, by waggling his eyebrows and waving his free hand urgently, that he was currently and inconveniently tied up by irksome matters which regretfully prevented him giving her his full attention, as of now. But as soon as he had disentangled himself from this importunate person, she could rest assured that her wish, which was certainly a wish of tone and brilliance, would be his command. "'I shall smash the lamp,' she said quietly. The genie flashed her a smile and spoke hastily into the thing he was cradling between his chin and his shoulder. Fine, he said. Great. It's a slice, believe me. Have your people call my people. Stay beyond, OK? Bye. He lowered the instrument. Bastard, he said vaguely. I really shall smash the lamp, said Canina. Uh, which lamp is this, said the genie hurriedly. How many have you got, said Nigel. I always thought genies had just the one. The genie explained wearily that in fact he had several lamps. There was a small but well-appointed lamp where he lived during the week, another rather unique lamp in the country, a carefully restored peasant rushlight in an unspoilt wine-growing district near Querm, and just recently a set of derelict lamps in the docks area of Ankh-Morpork that had great potential, once the smart crowd got there, to become the occult equivalent of a suite of offices and a wine bar. They listened in awe, like fish who had inadvertently swum into a lecture on how to fly. "'Who were your people the other people have got to call?' said Nigel, who was impressed, although he didn't know why or by what. "'Actually, I don't have any people yet,' said the genie, and gave a grimace that was definitely upwardly mobile at the corners. "'But I will.' "'Everyone shut up,' said Canina firmly, "'and you take us to Ark Morpork.' I should if I were you, said Creosote. When the young lady's mouth looks like a letterbox, it's best to do what she says. The genie hesitated. I'm not very deep on transport, he said. Learn, said Canina. She was tossing the lamp from hand to hand. Teleportation is a major headache, said the genie, looking desperate. Why don't we do lunch? Right, that's it, said Canina. Now I just need a couple of big flat rocks. OK, OK, just... Just hold hands, will you? I'll give it my best shot, but this could be one big mistake. The astro-philosophers of Krull once succeeded in proving conclusively that all places are one place and that the distance between them is an illusion. 
and this news was an embarrassment to all thinking philosophers because it did not explain, among other things, signposts. After years of wrangling, the whole thing was then turned over to Lai Tin Weedle, arguably the disc's greatest philosopher. Well, he always argued that he was. Who, after some thought, proclaimed that although it was indeed true that all places were one place, that place was very large. And so psychic order was restored. Distance is, however, an entirely subjective phenomenon, and creatures of magic can adjust it to suit themselves. They're not necessarily very good at it. Rincewind sat dejectedly in the blackened ruins of the library, trying to put his finger on what was wrong with them. Well, everything for a start. It was unthinkable that the library should be burned. It was the largest accumulation of magic on the disc. It underpinned wizardry. Every spell ever used was written down in it somewhere. Burning them was... was... There weren't any ashes. Plenty of wood ashes, lots of chains, lots of blackened stone, lots of mess. But thousands of books don't burn easily. They would leave bits of cover and piles of feathery ash. And there wasn't any. Rincewind stirred the rubble with his toe. There was only the one door into the library. Then there were the cellars. He could see the stairs down to them, choked with garbage. But you couldn't hide all the books down there. You couldn't teleport them out either. They would be resistant to such magic. Anyone who tried something like that would end up wearing his brains outside his hat. There was an explosion overhead. A ring of orange fire formed about halfway up the Tower of Sorcery, ascended quickly and soared off towards Quirm. Rincewind slid around on his makeshift seat and stared up at the Tower of Art. He got the distinct impression that it was looking back at him. It was totally without windows, but for a moment he thought he saw a movement up amongst the crumbling turrets. He wondered how old the tower really was. Older than the university, certainly. Older than the city, which had formed about it like a scree around a mountain. Maybe older than geography. There had been a time when the continents were different, Rincewind understood, and then they'd sort of shuffled more comfortably together like puppies in a basket. Perhaps the tower had been washed up on the waves of rock from somewhere else. Maybe it had been there before the disc itself, but Rincewind didn't like to consider that because it raised uncomfortable questions about who built it and what for. He examined his conscience. It said, I'm out of options. Please yourself. Rincewind stood up and brushed the dust and ash off his robe, removing quite a lot of the molting red plush as well. He removed his hat, made a preoccupied attempt at straightening the point, and replaced it on his head. Then he walked unsteadily towards the Tower of Art. It was a very old and quite small door at the base. He wasn't at all surprised when it opened as he approached. Strange place, said Nigel. Funny curve to the walls. Where are we, said Canina. And is there any alcohol, said Creosote. Probably not, he added. Why is it rocking, said Canina. I've never been anywhere with metal walls before, she sniffed. Can you smell oil, she added suspiciously. The genie reappeared, although this time without the smoke and erratic trap door effects. It was noticeable that he tried to keep as far away from Canina as politely possible. Everyone okay, he said. Is this Ark, she said. Only when we wanted to go there, we rather hoped you'd put us somewhere with a door. You're on your way, said the genie. In what? Something about the way in which the spirit hesitated caused Nigel's mind to leap a tall conclusion from a standing start. He looked down at the lamp in his hands. He gave it an experimental jerk. 
the floor shook. Oh, no, he said. It's physically impossible. We're in the lamp, said Canina. The room trembled again as Nigel tried to look down the spout. Don't worry about it, said the genie. In fact, don't think about it, if possible. He explained, although explained is probably too positive a word, and in this case really means failed to explain, but at some length, that it was perfectly possible to travel across the world in a small lamp being carried by one of the party, the lamp itself moving because it was being carried by one of the people inside it, because of, a, the fractal nature of reality, which meant that everything could be thought of as being inside everything else, and b, creative public relations. The trick relied on the laws of physics, failing to spot the flaw until the journey was complete. In the circumstances, it is best not to think about it, yeah? said the genie. Like not thinking about pink rhinoceroses, said Nigel, and gave an embarrassed laugh as they stared at him. It was a sort of game we had, he said. You had to avoid thinking of pink rhinoceroses, he coughed. I didn't say it was a particularly good game. He squinted down the spout again. No, said Canina. Not very. Er, uh, said the genie, would anyone like coffee? Some sounds? Quick game of significant quest? Very popular among the gods, demigods, demons and other supernatural creatures who feel at home with questions like, what is it all about? And where will it all end? Drink, said Creosote. White wine? Foul muck. The genie looked shocked. Red is bad for... it began. But any port in a storm, said Creosote hurriedly, or so turn even, but no umbrella in it. It dawned on the seraph that this wasn't the way to talk to the genie. He pulled himself together a bit. No umbrella by the five moons of Nazrim, or bits of fruit salad, or olives, or curly straws, or ornamental monkeys. I command thee by the seventeen side rites of Sarudin. I'm not an umbrella person, said the genie sulkily. It's pretty sparse in here, said Canina. Why don't you furnish it? What I don't understand, said Nigel, is if we're all in the lamp I'm holding, then the me in the lamp is holding a smaller lamp, and in that lamp... The genie waved his hands urgently. Don't talk about it, he commanded. Please. Nigel's honest brow wrinkled. Yes, but, he said, is there a lot of me or what? It's all cyclic, but stop drawing attention to it, yeah? Oh, shit. There was the subtle, unpleasant sound of the universe suddenly catching on. It was dark in the tower a solid core of antique darkness that had been there since the dawn of time and resented the intrusion of the upstart daylight that nipped in around Rincewind. He felt the air move as the door shut behind him and the dark poured back, filling up the space where the light had been so neatly that you couldn't even see the join even if the light had still been there. The interior of the tower smelled of antiquity with a slight suspicion of raven droppings. It took a great deal of courage to stand there in that dark. Rincewind didn't have that much, but stood there anyway. Something started to snuffle around his feet, and Rincewind stood very still. The only reason he didn't move was for fear of treading on something worse. Then a hand like an old leather glove touched his very gently, and a voice said, Ook. Rincewind looked up. 
The dark yielded just once to a vivid flash of light, and Rincewind saw. The whole tower was lined with books. They were squeezed on every step of the rotting spiral staircase that wound up inside. They were piled high up on the floor, although something about the way in which they were piled suggested that the word huddled would be more appropriate. They had lodged all right. They had perched on every crumbling ledge. They were observing him in some covert way that had nothing to do with the normal six senses. Books are pretty good at conveying meaning, not necessarily their own personal meanings, of course, and Rincewind grasped the fact that they were trying to tell him something. There was another flash. He realised that it was magic from the sorcerer's tower, reflected down from the distant hole that led onto the roof. At least it enabled him to identify Waffles, who was wheezing at his right foot. That was a bit of a relief. Now, if he could just put a name to the soft, repetitive slithering noise near his left ear. There was a further obliging flash, which found him looking directly into the little yellow eyes of the patrician, who was clawing patiently at the side of his glass jar. It was a gentle, mindless scrabbling, as if the little lizard wasn't particularly trying to get out, but was just vaguely interested in seeing how long it would take to wear the glass away. Rincewind looked down at the pear-shaped bulk of the librarian. There's thousands of them, he whispered, his voice being sucked away and silenced by the massed ranks of books. How did you get them all in here? Ook, ook. Hey, what? Ook, repeated the librarian, making vigorous flapping motions with his bald elbows. Fly? Ook. Can they do that? Ook, nodded the librarian. That must have been pretty impressive. I'd like to see that one day. Ook. Not every book had made it. Most of the important grimoires had got out, but a seven-volume herbal had lost its index to the flames, and many a trilogy was mourning for its lost volume. Quite a few books had scorch marks on their bindings. Some had lost their covers and trailed their stitching unpleasantly on the floor. A match flared, and pages rippled uneasily around the walls. But it was only the librarian who lit a candle and shambled across the floor at the base of a menacing shadow big enough to climb skyscrapers. He had set up a rough table against one wall, and it was covered with arcane tools, pots of rare adhesives, and a bookbinder's vice which was already holding a stricken folio. A few weak lines of magic fire crawled across it. The ape pushed the candlestick into Rincewind's hand, picked up a scalpel and a pair of tweezers, and bent low over the trembling book. Rincewind went pale. Um, he said, uh, do you mind if I go away? I faint at the sight of glue. The librarian shook his head and jerked a preoccupied thumb towards a tray of tools. Ook, he commanded. Rincewind nodded miserably and obediently handed him a pair of long-nosed scissors. The wizard winced as a couple of damaged pages were snipped free and dropped to the floor. What are you doing to it? he managed. Ook, an appendectomy. Oh. The ape jerked his thumb again without looking up. Rincewind fished a needle and thread out of the ranks on the tray and handed them over. There was a silence broken only by the scritching sound of thread being pulled through paper until the librarian straightened up and said, Ook. Rincewind pulled out his handkerchief and mopped the ape's brow. Ook. Don't mention it. Is it going to be all right? The librarian nodded. There was also a general, almost inaudible sigh of relief from the tier of books above them. Rincewind sat down. The books were frightened. In fact, they were terrified. 
The presence of the sorcerer made their spines creep, and the pressures of their attention closed in around him like a vice. All right, he mumbled, but what can I do about it? Ooh! The librarian gave Rincewind a look that would have been exactly like a quizzical look over the top of a pair of half-moon spectacles, if he had been wearing any, and reached for another broken book. I mean, you know I'm no good at magic. Ook! The sorcery that's about now, it's terrible stuff. I mean, it's the original stuff from right back in the dawn of time. Or around breakfast, at any rate. Ook! It'll destroy everything eventually, won't it? Ook! It's about time someone put a stop to this sorcery, right? Ook! Only it can't be me, you see. When I came here, I thought I could do something. But that tower is so big. It must be proof against all magic. If really powerful wizards won't do anything about it, how can I? Ook, agreed the librarian, sowing a ruptured spine. So you see, I think someone else can save the world this time. I'm no good at it. The ape nodded, reached across and lifted Rincewind's hat from his head. Hey! The librarian ignored him, picked up a pair of shears. Look, that's my hat, if you don't mind. Don't you dare do that to my... He leapt across the floor and was rewarded with a thump across the side of the head, which would have astonished him if he'd had time to think about it. The librarian might shuffle around the place like a good-natured wobbly balloon, but underneath that oversized skin was a framework of superbly cantilevered bone and muscle that could drive a fistful of calloused knuckles through a thick oak plank. Running into the librarian's arms was like hitting a hairy iron bar. Waffles started to bounce up and down, yelping with excitement. Rincewind screamed a hoarse, untranslatable yell of fury, bounced off the wall, snatched up a fallen rock as a crude club, kicked forward and stopped dead. The librarian was crouched in the centre of the floor with the shears touching but not yet cutting the hat, and he was grinning at Rincewind. They stood like a frozen tableau for some seconds. Then the ape dropped the shears, flicked several imaginary flecks of dust off the hat, straightened the point and placed it on Rincewind's head. A few shocked moments after this, Rincewind realised that he was holding up at arm's length a very large and extremely heavy rock. He managed to force it away on one side before it recovered from the shock and remembered to fall on him. I see, he said, sinking back against the wall and rubbing his elbows. And all that's supposed to tell me something, is it? A moral lesson. Let Rincewind confront his true self. Let him work out what he's really prepared to fight for, eh? Well, it was a very cheap trick, and I've news for you. If you think it worked, he snatched the hat brim. If you think it worked, if you think I've... You've got another thought. Listen, it's... If you think... His voice stuttered into silence. Then he shrugged. All right, but when you get down to it, what can I actually do? The librarian replied with an expansive gesture that indicated as clearly as if he'd said ook that Rincewind was a wizard with a hat, a library of magical books and a tower. This could be regarded as everything a magical practitioner could need. An ape, a small terrier with halitosis, and a lizard in a jar were optional extras. Rincewind felt a slight pressure on his foot. Waffles, who was extremely slow on the uptake, had fastened his toothless gums onto the toe of Rincewind's boot and was giving it a vicious suck. He picked the little dog up by the scruff of its neck and the bristly stub that, for the want of a better word, it called its tail, and gently lifted it sideways. OK he said. You'd better tell me what's been happening here. 
From the Karak Mountains, overlooking the vast cold Stowe Plain, in the middle of which Ankh Morpork sprawled like a bag of dropped groceries, the view was particularly impressive. Miss hits and ricochets from the magical battle were expanding outwards and upwards in a bowl-shaped cloud of curdled air at the heart of which strange lights flashed and sparkled. The roads leading away from it were packed with refugees, and every inn and wayside tavern was crowded out, or nearly everyone. No one seemed to want to stop at the rather pleasant little pub nestling among the trees just off the road to Quirm. It wasn't that they were frightened to go inside, it was just that, for the moment, they weren't being allowed to notice it. There was a disturbance in the air about half a mile away, and three figures dropped out of nowhere into a thicket of lavender. They lay supine in the sunshine among the broken, fragrant branches, until their sanity came back. Then Creosote said, Where are we, do you suppose? It smells like someone's underwear drawer, said Canina. Not mine, said Nigel, firmly. He eased himself up gently and added, Has anyone seen the lamp? Forget it. It's probably been sold to build a wine bar, said Canina. Nigel scrabbled around among the lavender stems until his hands found something small and metallic. Got it, he declared. Don't rub it, said the other two in harmony. They were too late anyway, but that didn't much matter, because all that happened when Nigel gave it a cautious buff was the appearance of some small smoking red letters in mid-air. Hi, Nigel read aloud. Do not put down the lamp because your custom is important to us. Please leave a wish after the tone, and very shortly it will be our command. In the meantime, have a nice eternity. He added, You know, I think he's a bit overcommitted. Canina said nothing. She was staring out across the plains to the broiling storm of magic. Occasionally some of it would detach and soar away to some distant tower. She shivered despite the growing heat of the day. We ought to get down there as soon as possible, she said. It's very important. Why? said Creosote. One glass of wine hadn't really restored him to his former easy-going nature. Canina opened her mouth and, quite unusually for her, shut it again. There was no way to explain that every gene in her body was dragging her onwards, telling her that she should get involved. Visions of swords and spiky balls on chains kept invading the hairdressing salons of her consciousness. Nigel, on the other hand, felt no such pounding. All he had to drive him onwards was imagination. But he did have enough of that to float a medium-sized war galley. He looked toward the city with what would have been, but for his lack of chin, an expression of set-jawed determination. Creosote realised that he was outnumbered. Do they have any drink down there? he said. Lots, said Nigel. That might do for a start, the seraph conceded. All right, lead on, O oh peach-breasted daughter of... And no poetry. They untangled themselves from the thicket and walked down the hillside until they reached the road, which before very long went past the aforementioned tavern, or as Creosote persisted in calling it, Caravanserai. They hesitated about going in. It didn't seem to welcome visitors. But Canina, who by breeding and upbringing tended to skulk around the back of buildings, found four horses tethered in the yard. They considered them carefully. It would be stealing, said Nigel slowly. Canina opened her mouth to agree, and the words, Why not? slid past her lips. She shrugged. Perhaps we should leave some money, Nigel suggested. Don't look at me, said Creosote. Or maybe write a note and leave it under the bridle, or something, don't you think? By way of an answer, Canina vaulted up onto the largest horse, which by the look of it belonged to a soldier. Weaponry was slung all over it. Creosote, 
hoisted himself uneasily onto the second horse, a rather skittish bay, and sighed. "'She's got that letterbox look,' he said. "'I should do what she says.' Nigel regarded the other two horses suspiciously. One of them was very large and extremely white. Not the off-white, which was all that most horses could manage, but a translucent ivory-white tone which Nigel felt an unconscious urge to describe as shroud. It also gave him a distinct impression that it was more intelligent than he was. He selected the other one. It was a bit thin but docile, and he managed to get on after only two tries. They set off. The sound of their hoofbeats barely penetrated the gloom inside the tavern. The innkeeper moved like someone in a dream. He knew he had customers. He'd even spoken to them. He could even see them sitting round a table by the fire. But if asked to describe who he'd talked to and what he had seen, he'd have been at a loss. This is because the human brain is remarkably good at shutting out things it doesn't want to know. His could currently have shielded a bank vault. And the drinks. Most of them he'd never heard of, but strange bottles kept appearing on the shelves above the beer barrels. The trouble was that whenever he tried to think about it, his thoughts just slid away. The figures around the table looked up from their cards. One of them raised a hand. It's stuck on the end of his arm, and it's got five fingers, the innkeeper's mind said. It must be a hand. One thing the innkeeper's brain couldn't shut out was the sound of the voices. This one sounded as though someone was hitting a rock with a roll of sheet lead. Bar person! The innkeeper groaned faintly. The thermic lances of horror were melting their way steadily through the steel door of his mind. Let me see now. That's a... Uh, what was it again? A bloody Mary! This voice made a simple drinks order sound like the opening of hostilities. Oh, yes, and... Mine was a small eggnog, said Pestilence. An eggnog. With a cherry in it. Good, lied the heavy voice. And that'll be a small port wine for me, and... The speaker glanced across the table at the fourth member of the quartet and sighed, You'd better bring another bowl of peanuts. About three hundred yards down the road, the horse thieves were trying to come to terms with a new experience. Certainly a smooth ride, Nigel managed eventually. And uh, a lovely, lovely view, said Creosote, his voice lost in the slipstream. But I wonder, said Nigel, if we have done exactly the right thing. We're moving, aren't we? demanded Canina. Don't be so petty. It's just that, well, looking at cumulus clouds from above is... Shut up. Sorry. Anyway, they're stratus. Stratocumulus at most. Right, said Nigel miserably. Does it make any difference? said Creosote, who was lying flat on his horse's neck with his eyes shut. About a thousand feet. Oh, could be 750, conceded Kalina. Ah! The Tower of Sorcery trembled. Coloured smoke rolled through its vaulted rooms and shining corridors. In the big room at the very tip, where the air was thick and greasy and tasted of burning tin, many wizards had passed out with the sheer mental effort of the battle, but enough remained. They sat in a wide circle, locked in concentration. It was just possible to see the shimmering in the air as the raw sorcery swirled out of the staff in Coin's hand and into the centre of the octogram. Outlandish shapes appeared for a brief instant and vanished. The very fabric of reality was being put through the ringer in there. 
Carding shuddered and turned away in case he saw anything he really couldn't ignore. The surviving senior wizards had a simulacrum of the disc hovering in front of them. As Carding looked at it again, the little red glow over the city of Quirm flared and went out. The air creaked. There goes Quirm, murmured Carding. That just leaves Al-Kali, said one of the others. There's some clever power there. Carding nodded glumly. He'd quite liked Quirm, which was a, had been a pleasant little city overlooking the Rim Ocean. He dimly recalled being taken there once when he was small. For a moment he gazed sadly into the past. It had wild geraniums, he recalled, filling the sloping cobble streets with their musky fragrance. Growing out of the walls, he said out loud. Pink, they were pink. The other wizards looked at him oddly. One or two of a particularly paranoid frame of mind, even for wizards, glanced suspiciously at the walls. "'Are you all right?' said one of them. "'Um,' said Carding. "'Oh, yes. Sorry. Miles away.' He turned back to look at Coyne, who was sitting off to one side of the circle with the staff across his knees. The boy appeared to be asleep. Perhaps he was. But Carding knew in the tormented pit of his soul that the staff didn't sleep. It was watching him, testing his mind.' It knew. It even knew about the pink geraniums. I never wanted it to be like this, he said softly. All we really wanted was a bit of respect. Are you sure you're all right? Carding nodded vaguely. As his colleagues resumed their concentration, he glanced sideways at them. Somehow, all his old friends had gone. Well, not friends. A wizard never had friends, at least not friends who were wizards. It needed a different word. Ah, oh, yes, there it was. Enemies. But a very decent class of enemies. Gentlemen. The cream of their profession. Not like these people. For all that, they seemed to have risen in the craft since the sorcerer had arrived. Other things besides the cream floated to the top, he reflected sourly. He turned his attention to Al-Khali, probing with his mind, knowing that the wizards there were almost certainly doing the same, seeking constantly for a point of weakness. He thought, am I a point of weakness? Spelter tried to tell me something. It was about the staff. A man should lean on his staff, not the other way round. It's steering him, leading him. I wish I'd listened to Spelter. This is wrong. I'm a point of weakness. He tried again, riding the surges of power, letting them carry his mind into the enemy tower. Even Abrim was making use of sorcery, and Carding let himself modulate the wave, insinuating himself past the defences erected against him. The image of the interior of the Al-Khali Tower appeared, focused. The luggage trundled along the glowing corridors. It was exceedingly angry now. It had been awoken from hibernation, it had been scorned, it had been briefly attacked by a variety of mythological and now extinct life-forms, it had a headache, and now, as it entered the Great Hall, it detected the hat the horrible hat, the cause of everything it was currently suffering. It advanced purposely. Carding, testing the resistance of Abrim's mind, felt the man's attention waver. For a moment he saw through the enemy's eyes, saw the squat oblong cantering across the stone. For a moment Abrim attempted to shift his concentration, and then, no more able to help himself than is a cat when it sees something small and squeaky run across the floor, Carding struck. Not much. It didn't need much. Abrim's mind was attempting to balance and channel huge forces, and it needed hardly any pressure to topple it from its position.
Abrim extended his hands to blast the luggage, gave the merest beginnings of a scream, and imploded. The wizards around him thought they saw him grow impossibly small in a fraction of a second and vanish, leaving a black afterimage. The more intelligent of them started to run, and the magic he had been controlling surged back out and flooded free in one great, randomised burst that blew the hat to bits, took out the entire lower levels of the tower and quite a large part of what remained of the city. So many wizards in Ark had been concentrating on the hall that the sympathetic resonance blew them across the room. Carding ended up on his back, his hat over his eyes. They hauled him out and dusted him off and carried him to Coin and the staff amid cheers, although some of the older wizards forbore to cheer, but he didn't seem to pay any attention. He stared sightlessly down at the boy and then slowly raised his hands to his ears. "'Can't you hear them?' he said. The wizards fell silent. Carding still had power, and the tone of his voice would have quelled a thunderstorm. Coin's eyes glowed. "'I hear nothing,' he said. Carding turned to the rest of the wizards. "'Can't you hear them?' They shook their heads. One of them said, "'Hear what, brother?' Carding smiled, and it was a wide, mad smile. Even Coin took a step backwards. "'You'll hear them soon enough,' he said. "'You've made a beacon. You'll all hear them. "'But you won't hear them for long.' He pushed aside the younger wizards who were holding his arms and advanced on Coin. "'You're pouring sorcery into the world and other things are coming with it,' he said. "'Others have given them a pathway, but you've given them an avenue.' He sprang forwards and snatched the black staff out of Coin's hands and swung it up in the air to smash it against the wall. Carding went rigid as the staff struck back. Then his skin began to blister. Most of the wizards managed to turn their heads away. A few, and there are always a few like that, watched in obscene fascination. Coin watched too. His eyes widened in wonder. One hand went to his mouth. He tried to back away. He couldn't. There, Cumulus. Oh, marvellous, said Nigel weakly. Weight doesn't come into it. My steed has carried armies. My steed has carried cities. Yea, he hath carried all things in their due time, said Death. But he's not going to carry you three. Why not? It's a matter of the look of the thing. It's going to look pretty good then, isn't it? said War testily. The one horseman and the three pedestrians of the apocalypse? Perhaps you could ask them to wait for us, said Pestilence, his voice sounding like something dripping out of the bottom of a coffin. I have things to attend to, said Death. He made a little clicking noise with his teeth. I'm sure you'll manage. You normally do. War watched the retreating horse. Sometimes he really gets on my nerves. Why is he always so keen to have the last word? He said. Horse of habit, I suppose. They turned back to the tavern. Neither spoke for some time, and then War said, Where's Famine? Went to find the kitchen. Oh. War scuffed one armoured foot in the dust and thought about the distance to Ankh. It was a very hot afternoon. The apocalypse could jolly well wait. One for the road, he suggested. Should we? 
said Pestilence, doubtfully. I thought we were expected. I mean, I wouldn't like to disappoint people. We've got time for a quick one, I'm sure, War insisted. Pub clocks are never right. We've got bags of time. All the time in the world. Carding slumped forward and thudded on the shining white floor. The staff rolled out of his hands and upended itself. Coyne prodded the limp body with his foot. I did warn him, he said. I told him what would happen if he touched it again. What did he mean, them? There was an outbreak of coughing and a considerable inspection of fingernails. What did he mean? Coyne demanded. Ovin Harkardley, lecturer in law, once again found that the wizards around him were parting like morning mist. Without moving, he appeared to have stepped forward. His eyes swivelled backwards and forwards like trapped animals. Ah, he said. He waved his thin hands vaguely. The world, you see, that is, the reality in which we live, in fact, it can be thought of as, in a manner of speaking, a rubber sheet. He hesitated, aware that the sentence was not going to appear in anyone's book of quotable quotes. In that, he added hurriedly, it is distorted, um, distended, by the presence of magic in any degree, and if I may make a point here, too much magical potentiality, if foregathered in one spot, forces our reality mm, downwards. Although, of course, one should not take the term literally, because in no sense do I seek to suggest a physical dimension, and it has been postulated that a sufficient exercise of magic can, shall we say, mm, break through the actuality at its lowest point and offer, perhaps, a pathway to the inhabitants, or if I may use a more correct term, denizens of the lower plane, which is called by the loose-tongued the dungeon dimensions, who, because perhaps of the difference in energy levels, are naturally attracted to the brightness of this world, our world. There was the typical long pause, which usually followed Harkardly's speeches, while everybody mentally inserted commas and stitched the fractured clauses together. Coin's lips moved silently for a while. Do you mean magic attracts these creatures? he said eventually. His voice was quite different now. It lacked its former edge. The staff hung in the air above the prone body of Carding, rotating slowly. The eyes of every wizard in the place were on it. So it appears, said Harkardly. Students of such things say their presence is heralded by a coarse susuration. Coin looked uncertain. They buzz, said one of the other wizards helpfully. The boy knelt down and peered closely at Carding. He's very still, he said curiously. Is anything bad happening to him? It may be, said Harkardly guardedly. He's dead. I wish he wasn't. It is a view, I, I suspect, which he shares. But I can help him, said Coyne. He held out his hands and the staff glided into them. If it had a face, it would have smirked. When he spoke next, his voice once again had the cold, distant tones of someone speaking in a steel room. If failure had no penalty, success would not be a prize, he said. Sorry, said Harkardly, you've lost me there. Coyne turned on his heel and strode back to his chair. We can fear nothing, he said. 
and it sounded more like a command. What of these dungeon dimensions? If they should trouble us, away with them. A true wizard will fear nothing. Nothing. He jerked to his feet again and strode to the simulacrum of the world. The image was perfect in every detail, down to a ghost of great Artuin paddling slowly through the interstellar deeps a few inches above the floor. Coyne waved his hand through it all disdainfully. "'Ours is a world of magic,' he said, "'and what can be found in it that can stand against us?' Harkardly thought that something was expected of him. "'Absolutely no one,' he said, "'except for the gods, of course.' There was dead silence. "'The gods?' said Coyne quietly. "'Well, yes, certainly we don't challenge the gods.' They do their job, we do ours. No sense in... Who rules the disc, wizards or gods? Hark hardly thought quickly. Oh, wizards, of course, but as it were, mm, under the gods. End of CD 6